Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, in Rhode Island, an investigative report reveals police use of force is always justified. Unprecedented high numbers of voters chose to cast absentee ballots in New Hampshire's primary elections this past week, despite a pushback against mask wearing. And did COVID fears create a second summer on the Cape? These stories and more during our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, a sweeping family saga of the pain of war, the power of ancestry, and the true meaning of sacrifice and resilience. The Mountain Sing follows four generations of an imagined Vietnamese family whose story is shaped by decades of war. If all of us read books from other cultures and see the light of other cultures, there would be no war on earth. This historical novel is our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Hi, Arnie. Hi. Happy September, Kelly. Oh, same to you. Ted Nacy, politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI. Welcome back, Ted. Callie, always great to be with you. I'm great to have you. And Jeff Spillane, reporter for the Cape Cod Times. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Callie. So glad to be here. All right. So we're off to the races. Let me start with you, Ted, talking about the police use of force investigative report. Um, we have a clip, actually, from your station, WPRI. Um, let's take a listen to that and then talk on the other side. A Target 12 analysis of statewide data found there were more than 8,600 instances of use of force among all departments in the state in the last five years, and the vast majority, all but four, were deemed justified after an internal review by the police department. Then blood started to come pouring down. That was the case with Joshua Robinson. The city settled a lawsuit with him after a violent arrest in 2013, yet the use of force in his arrest was ultimately deemed justified by an internal investigation of the Providence Police. Continuing going forward, officers need to be charged. Well, that's a pretty powerful uh, clip, Ted. And what I thought was interesting is that this guy had never come forward until recently when his story is fairly horrific, the, the person who's speaking about what happened to him. Yeah, that was my colleague, uh, Tim White, our chief investigative reporter at WPRI. He and another colleague, Eli Sherman, they spent months going through um, as many police reports as they could get across Rhode Island about uh, when force was used by police. And as you heard there, in all but four instances out of over 8,000, it was uh, it was deemed justified. And uh, this story, I think, I'm, I'm glad you played that, Callie, because I think it's a good example of, um, you know, what we try to do as journalists. They, they did the, the digging to see if there was a systemic problem here, but that personal story, the young man from Providence you just heard who... 
really had a horrific time with the police and the city eventually settled with him. Um, you know, you, you just listening to him, his experience, seeing the pictures, it was, of course, a television story of him, him bloodied and bruised. Um, it really brings to it. I just really, I think, made a, for me, it brought to light. You know, we hear so much about this. We're talking so much about this right now. But a reminder that there is a person behind every one of these stories. And, of course, we did, uh, Tim and Eli, they did go to the police, uh, uh, the police chiefs association, as well as the the top police chief in Cranston, our second biggest city. And, you know, as you'd expect, generally speaking, they, uh, they feel that use of force is generally uh, done the right way in Rhode Island. You know, even with that stat of just four examples where use of force was not deemed justified out of 8,000 plus, they said, well, that just shows we're training well. But of course, we heard from quite a few people uh, who were very alarmed by that finding, who just, they just don't believe that there were only four out of 8,000 plus cases uh, would have been uh, a time when the police, you know, shouldn't have used force. So it was, you know, it was just another way for us to try to take something that's such a big national issue and and bring it to the local level and, and look at what's happening on the ground here in a state where, thankfully, you know, we haven't had, uh, you know, one of these incidents this year. We've had them in the past. Uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's it's it was compelling work by my colleagues and something that's really gotten people talking. So there's a couple of things. First of all, it's very important in these situations that, um, you know, we all get away from what we think is going on and have the data. So uh, the data was gathered here. So your reporters are operating from what came from the files of the police themselves. So we need to underscore that. The second thing is just to l- let people know what we, why this is uh, a problem. The Robinson, who was speaking in the piece, uh, was choked, bludgeoned with a flashlight, beaten uh, by police, hogtied, hands and feet fastened behind his back, and one officer had a knee pressed on his back. Uh, now, this was because they thought he was trying to swallow drugs in an attempt to hide them after a traffic stop, which we can all agree would be illegal. However, police found no drugs on the scene, and a medical exam found none in his system. Uh, officers charged him with resisting arrest none of nonetheless, two counts of simple assault and obstructing police. Um, And then when it went through the Office of uh, Professional Responsibility by the Providence Police, um, they said the use of force was justified, and that was underscored by the Rhode Island U.S. Attorney's Office and by the Rhode Island Attorney General's Office. So, I, you know, I think normal people hear that and say, um, how is that justified? They, you know, this is what makes people very upset because it doesn't seem to make sense to them. Um, clearly, there are going to be some uses of force uh, when, when you know, uh, there are examples that the police can point to that it is, it seems reasonable outside of the police to be justified. But this doesn't, and that's the problem. As this report came out here this past week, there was a study that came out which underscored that uh, there were racial disparities across the court system in Massachusetts and that black and Latino defendants, and by the way, Mr. Johnson in this piece uh, that you covered, Ted, um, is black, are more likely than white defendants to be locked up for drug and weapons offenses and get longer sentences, you know, even if there are the exact same crimes by white people. There's more to the story. But uh, again, the data demonstrates that across the board uh, and all of the circumstances, uh, the sentences are harsher and it's harder to get out from under a 
quote unquote, justified uh, defense from police. Now, Arnie, would you like to respond? Yeah, I actually would. So, Ted, the nugget that jumped out at me from the story was the following. Black people who represent about 8 percent of the population made up 10 percent of all reports in 2016, 30 percent in 2017, 30 percent in 2018, and at least 27 percent in 2019. What I want to know is what happened from 2016 to 2017, where you see uh, an incredible increase and then consistently at that level of 30, 30, 27, that sort of struck something at me. And I kept thinking, so what happened in 2016 and what changed in 2017? And uh, not that I can attribute everything to the election of Donald Trump, but we know that there has been a significant rise in racial tension and a real sense of frustration. I don't have like an arc of history of 10 years. I just am looking at what was in the piece. But I saw that and that just jumped out at me trying to figure out what explains this. I mean, I think I think it's important um, to, because we're all doing, you know, regional looking at the region and what what uh, stories are in the region to, that when we hear these national stories, quote unquote, that they really are made up of what's going on in all of our communities. And so it sometimes it feels like that's very distant what we hear elsewhere. But in fact, um, it's it's often right here where we live. And um, this is the reason why a lot of people are trying to have broader discussions about how we rethink um, justice and police power. Yeah, and I'd also, I'd, one thing I'd just add, is, you know, these are hard conversations. I mean, yes. uh, there are good police officers, of course, in Rhode Island who, who do everything the right way, who work hard. That's a tough job. And we certainly heard from some of them who, you know, thought that, uh, you know, was painting the entire police force in a bad light. I, of course, would argue we looked, you know, simply at that. We you know, we, we made sure to give plenty of time uh, to hear the police uh, side of the story on this. But, you know, I think for a long time, probably you heard much more from the police side of the story like this. And I think there has been a new examination by everyone, not just us by any means, but this is an example in our case, to make sure. Let's also hear from the people on the other side of these police reports about their experience and what they experienced. And, and you know, as as when you, you know, as you laid it out, frankly, better than I did, Callie, what had happened to uh, Mr. Robinson here, um, j- just the details of it and hearing a human being talk about that, it can't help but make you think twice about, well, is this the right way we should be policing? If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me remotely are Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN, Ted Nisi, politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI, and Jeff Spillane, reporter for the Cape Cod Times. We're discussing the latest news in the region you may have missed. I want to move on to you, Jeff, because we're talking about policing, but this is more directly to do with with uh, gun and gun ownership. And there is a uh, a movement on the Cape in opposition to a a new gun site. Tell me about it. Why? How it came to be, and why people are upset, and 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 why this should be unusual. Sure. This is a uh, it, uh, Kelly. It's a proposed eight lane machine gun range at the that the Massachusetts Army National Guard is planning to build at Joint Base Cape Cod. That's here on the Upper Cape in Bourne, Mashpee, Sandwich, and Falmouth, generating quite a bit of controversy here, especially among environmentalists. Um, and what the plan is here is to clear cut 170 acres of land, disturbing about 200 or so acres. But in total, about 5,000 acres are going to be required for this range because you need to take into consideration where these projectiles are going to land. Um, and that 
pretty much is about a quarter of the base itself, which is about 22,000 acres. So there was a 100-page um, environmental assessment prepared for the National Guard, which became available, at least to the public, within the past two weeks, pretty much saying the project will have no impact. Uh, and some groups down here, as you can well imagine, are saying, yeah, wait a minute, we don't think that's the case. They're, they're speaking about, you know, we're going to have more intense noise. There's going to be more traffic here because they do say the population at the base would increase by about 19% not to mention uh, affecting rare species that are uh, living on the base as well as creating a wildfire hazard. So is there more, uh, is it appears to be more opposition to the disturbance of the landscape as opposed to the actual, you know, content of the business, if you will? Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's some of both. But, you know, the Association to Pre- um, Preserve Cape Cod, I spoke with the executive director, Andrew Gopley, about this uh, this week. And he said he's, he's pretty disappointed that a lot of this seemed to have been done behind the scenes without involving the community. He said in the past, the Cape, the towns here on the Cape have worked with, with the military and the base uh, very closely to protect water supplies. Um, and if there were some plans to expand the base, they would talk about some mitigation. He said from his perspective, this, this is not a serious document. It pretty much says, yeah, there's nothing to see here, you know, move on. And um, he says that there should be a public meeting held here on the Cape before this moves forward. Um, And they have, of course, um, submitted written comments to the National Guard, pretty much saying this isn't an adequate analysis. Um, And not to mention the fact that this is very close to the groundwater lens that provides drinking water to Mm. several of our towns here. So possibility of pollution has some people concerned. Very much so. Yeah. Very, very much so. Um, I should mention that this would be the only machine gun range in Massachusetts right now. Oh, soldiers in the whole of Massachusetts? Whole of Massachusetts. Um, right wow. now you have to travel to Jericho, Vermont, which is about 270 miles away for training. Um, well, I should note, uh, uh, Ted, that gun sales are up, way up uh, all across the country. So um, I'm going to guess that this would probably be a quite successful situation uh, if it were allowed to proceed but because of that. Gun sales have gone up so much in Rhode Island that uh, during the pandemic, in fact, the governor had to issue an executive order using her emergency powers, extending the time police chiefs have to review applications because they could not keep up with the applications in Rhode Island for new gun sales. Uh, They send it from seven to 30 days, I believe. And I think that's still in effect now. That was months ago. So, you know, we're seeing we're seeing that all over the country, very much including here. Yeah. Well, and Arnie, you're in the. Can live, I raise my hand? Here? Yeah, the live free or yeah. die state, where they take it onto the the the, the Senate floor. Exactly. They take it on the floor of the legislature. Yeah. No, no, no. But, but let me just remind everyone: we are talking about a large machine gun range. Can we talk about noise pollution? Can we talk about the sound of these machine guns? Please, 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 everyone. There are gun ranges. That's a huge issue. There are gun ranges everywhere. If you could read my Facebook page, people are apoplectic because it is like living in a war zone, and yet you think you've moved to, like, rural New Hampshire, and all of a sudden you find out that there's a gun range, and they start shooting at really interesting times of the day and night, obviously for different practices. You want to know what happens at dusk. You want to know what happens in the early morning. And I just want people to understand this is part of the problem. It's not just what they're going to do to the physical environment. It's what they're going to do to the auditory environment. Mm. They are machine guns, everyone. They keep going. Well, um, 
Let, let me transition to you on another story. Uh, someone who kept going, apparently, uh, is uh, Representative Jim Spillane, who posted something that people are referring to as a joke, though I don't I don't see evidence that he called it a joke. Maybe he did. Um, his his public service announcement, I'm using his language, was if you see a BLM, that would be Black Lives Matter, sign on a lawn, it's the same as having the porch light on for Halloween. You're free to loot and burn that house. Some some are calling for his resignation. He's, he's not res- resigning. Where do we stand now? Well, where do we, where, the AG is looking into it. Uh, obviously, uh, statements were issued by Sununu, the Speaker of the House. They're like appalled at this. Well, appalled. This is a four-term Republican state representative, everyone. Let me remind you, this is an elected official. This is not some guy just sort of, you know, popping off on his Facebook page. And he actually framed it on his Facebook page as a public service announcement. And and when you, and when you see the, the uh, political and toxic and racist environment in this country, you look at this and when an elected official does this, you are horrified, especially because in some ways it a little bit mirrors the president of the United States. So I'm going to remind you, you know, it's sort of working itself down the food chain and people are saying they are afraid. And they have a legitimate reason to be afraid because of how he framed it and because of his position of authority. It's interesting that in his very Republican town, the five-member town board voted unanimously to request that Spillane resign his seat representing Candia Nottingham and Deerfield. That's unusual. All of them were horrified by this, meant that none of them thought that this was a joke. Um, Let me move on to the absentee ballot turnout in New Hampshire, which was, you know, quite phenomenal. And I want to put it in the context of what we're hearing about the national turnout, mostly driven by absentee uh, ballot voting. Let's play a clip from WMUR-TV, which talking about this. Over 100,000 voters in New Hampshire have requested an absentee ballot. That is eight times more than the state has ever seen in more than 100 years of the September primary. Secretary of State Bill Gardner says more than 75,000 absentee ballots have been returned. Several more thousand are expected to be added to that. So what we have is a situation where lots of things can change um, election-wise because of the huge turnout. But also, I just think overall, uh, Arnie, I mean, this is exciting that a lot of voters are I know, driven by uh, a horrible virus, but are paying attention and wanting to make sure that they, their vote gets in. The exciting thing is, is that we, we had a very, we, we don't have mail-in voting. We did have absentee balloting. We've expanded the absentee balloting. It used to be you had to be disabled or you had to be out of town. Uh, and that was the only reason why you could get an absentee ballot. We've now said fear of contracting COVID is also a valid reason for obtaining an absentee ballot, which has really opened it up for all of us. So in a lot of ways, it's a universal excuse for us to do it. Uh, we probably think about 80,000 people voted absentee. But what we're talking about is looking at a primary in 2018, which was the highest ever at about 228,000 people voting. We are now looking at around 300 to maybe even more voting. And that is incredibly interesting. And the absentee ballot just meant that you didn't even need to show up and that you could still participate in Tuesday's election. So um, I think that bodes both well for November, but it also means it's going to be close, Kelly. It's going to be close in New Hampshire. And people are, are now not looking at polls. They're looking at the most important poll, which is exercising the franchise. And if you look at the New Hampshire turnout, 
it was really right down the middle, and that means you really have to hustle to make sure whatever result happens in November is because you really pull the vote out and you make a difference in that November election. Well, and I want, uh, Ted, you to tag on to this because uh, Rhode Islanders turned out, as I said, this is happening everywhere in great numbers, too. And one of the of, of the of the uh, results of that is that we're we as voters are going to have to learn um, new patience because the mail-in ballots take a minute to count. Um, and so it, the, as Arnie said, there may be many close races, but you might not know the result uh, for a few days. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we, we had our primary in Rhode Island on uh, Tuesday as well, just like Arnie up in New Hampshire. And, you know, this was, you know, Arnie had exciting things like governor's races on the ballot. There was really no uh, there's no statewide offices on the ballot in Rhode Island this year. Uh, the federal office holders, none of them had any serious challenge. Um, it was mostly races for legislature, a couple of mayoral primaries, and yet turnout um, was very strong for a primary. There were, uh, at last count, about 86, 86 excuse me, thousand people uh, had cast a ballot um, in Rhode Island. It didn't top seventy thousand in the last two similar primaries. You know, presidential years, no statewide offices. Um, so you saw that, and we had more than thirty thousand people cast those votes by mail. And unlike some states, Rhode Island centrally counts the mail ballots at the board of elections. Uh, once, once. 8 p.m. hits on primary night. And it's it looks like it's going to take I'd say the estimate now is it's going to be 48 hours to do 38,000, 30 plus thousand mail ballots. Uh, And so that's causing some alarm. It is. It's great that people are voting, but there is some alarm about, well, if you have a huge turnout in November, which everyone's predicting, and on top of that, you have uh, a really a ton of mail ballots. How many days will it be for Rhode Islanders to find out who won these races, especially in like legislative races where it's a few hundred votes? Yeah. Well, and Jeff, uh, in Massachusetts, uh, Bill Galvin, our secretary of state, just announced that uh, the Massachusetts primary drew 1.7 million voters. We broke a 1990 turnout record because of the the new uh, vote by mail uh, vote. So it's going to be a lot of counting and, and, and it'll right. be slow. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we, we expected it to be high. I didn't expect it to be a record, but I just wanted to say, you know, it had the, these mail-in ballots. Um, I did a couple stories on this and followed the whole process on how they're <laughs> the life of a mail-in ballot. It adds about eight to 10 steps to town clerk's mm. offices. It's incredibly time consuming. Exactly. Thank you. And as we look to November, it's like, wow, we might be waiting. It might be some late nights. Yeah, it's going to be. And I, I personally think that, you know, Americans just need to chill their jets and, and get accustomed to not having an answer immediately. There's nothing wrong with that. One tough part, Callie, is between, you know, because our station also covers southeastern Massachusetts. So I feel like it's been Election Day every day for 10 days. And it's hard to <laughs> that That's true. Order adrenaline going full force for that long, like usually on an election night where you're fueled by pizza. <laughs> yeah, no, I, right. I know I get that part. Well, um, Jeff, where you are, people are voting with their feet to make it a second summer down on the Cape. Um, talk about that. And if it's really going to happen. It looks all the indicators are there, including the ex- crazy traffic trying to get there uh, over the Labor oh, Day oh, holiday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, last time we spoke uh, when we had the show it was the spring. We really didn't know what to expect uh, here in the summer. And as it turned out, some numbers came in yesterday to the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce and said, you know, the Cape actually did have the best occupancy rate in Massachusetts for the summer. The overall occupancy rate for, for August was about 72%, which is a good 10% behind last year. 
but we are seeing some indications that it's going to be a busier fall than usual. And part of this is a lot of people are working remotely, as I am. Children are learning remotely. So the Chamber of Commerce has launched a campaign called The Second Season. If you're going to work and, and, and go to school remotely, why not do it from the Cape? Yeah. Um, it's a still a beautiful time of year here. The water is warm. You're not tethered to school and athletic activities back home, so come down here. We are also noticing some other interesting indicators that it's going to be a busy fall. A lot of snowbirds live here in the Cape. We are seeing that a lot of a lot of them are not going to return to Florida, at least not as early as they would, if at all. And we spoke wow. with one of the residents uh, in Wellfleet, who was, uh, typically goes back to Florida very soon, says, you know what, I don't like the way that the Governor DeSantis is, is running things down there. I think we're going to stay up here this winter. Another indicator, which you would not think um, of uh, off the top of your head, is uh, trash. Um, hmm. the, a couple of the uh, disposal companies <laughs> down here are saying, you know what, we're seeing a lot more contracts going longer into the fall and staying longer and even year-round. Um, so I never thought of trash as an indicator of what's going to be happening here in the fall, but it is. Wow. We're also seeing some uh, bump in uh, enrollments in some schools down here as well. Um, where it appears as if seasonal residents are not returning home. They've decided not to uh, stay with remote learning from their home district, uh, but are enrolling here. And I noticed like, Nantucket seems to be one that's seen quite a bit, about 20 new students as of last week. Well, Jeff, let me ask one other question, which is critical to all this, and that's the Steamship Authority. I mean, that, last summer, as we all discussed, there were many, 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 many issues, um, and there were some concerns about its financial health. Certainly, there was a huge drop in ridership in normal times before we got to what is typically the, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming over as tourists. You didn't get that big bump during the summertime. But now, as you've said, if you're about to get another steady uh, increase of folks and more round, year-round people, will that make up a deficit? Will they be? Will the Steamship Authority be healthier? And will there be uh, plenty of uh, uh, rides available? Because they usually cut back on their schedule. Yeah, and, and they did. And they did go up to a, a, a more robust schedule for the last few weeks of the summer, but they did get a financial bailout earlier this year, Kelly. Um, they are seeing the numbers trickle up a bit here, but the day trip market has really been affected this summer. They're not seeing a lot of people just going over to the islands for the day. Mm-hmm. And it appears as if the auto traffic on the steamship has remained almost normal for the summer. So they're doing, But they're doing a lot better than other transportation um, providers down here on the Cape. The Cape Flyer, which is the weekend service. Oh, I love that. Don't tell me. Oh, is it in trouble? Yeah, it is. Um, Between South Station and Hyannis, historically about 1,200 passengers on a normal weekend. This summer they've been doing about 300. Mm. We have JetBlue that comes into Hyannis in the summer. Um, There have been, uh, for most flights, seen about 10 to 20 passengers, and these planes uh, hold about 100 people. And um, Cape Air is not having a good time, uh, nor are some of the bus lines that service the Cape. Um, So hopefully things will pick up for them at some point soon, but not looking good for a few of them there. Plymouth Plymouth and Brockton bus line is not even coming to the Cape yet. Yeah, that's 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 a real blow. But we're at, we're seeing those transportation issues everywhere. I want to ask one more question, and whether how it connects with what you've just said with regard to second season, second summer, whatever we're calling it, and that is the uh, number of sales of property 
that have gone through the roof down there. Now, mm. is that connected? Yeah, you know, it's red hot. Um, we just had some numbers released this year. The They have broken records for per month's uh, unit sales on the Cape in July and August, 867 deeds recorded here last month. And there's a general thought that, well, you know what, there's going to be migration from urban areas, from the cities. People can work from home. They can study from home. They're all going to come here to the Cape and, and do that. And I spoke with a couple uh, real estate agents as well as a register of deeds here in the county. He goes, you know what, that may not be the case. Let's take a look at this in a few months. Um, and he tried to explain the numbers. He said, you've got to understand, we really couldn't do a lot in April, May, and June. Mm. There was pent-up demand. It took a long time for people to get comfortable to put their house on the market, have people showing uh, and coming in and, and seeing the houses. So that might explain some of the you know, incredible numbers that we're seeing this summer. Got it. You know, if it goes for four or five months, so maybe we can talk again. But um, there is an inventory problem here on the Cape as well. Mm. Well, uh, let me finish up with uh, this, um, Arnie, up your way. The ski areas are getting ready to open, and, and it's they're going to look totally different. But they are sounding from this report by In-Depth New Hampshire that they feel pretty confident that they'll be able to get people back. But I think of skiing as people in groups. So they seem to have figured out how to do it so that people can be safe. All right, so here's the mantra for the ski industry this year. Everyone take this, take down this little expression, know before you go. Mm. Know before you go. What does that mean? That means that you have to contact the ski area. You have to get as much of your stuff done online, through your ski tickets, your rentals, all that kind of stuff. Do it ahead of time before you get there. The last thing they want are people lining up for anything. You talk about the groups, Callie. They don't want groups. They want people to ski, but they don't want groups because they really want to sort of respect the the physical distancing that is expected because of COVID-19. They're still praying for a vaccine, but you and I both know that's like la-la land. Um, (laughs) But they're, they're... they, they feel good because a lot of the activity is done outdoors. Mm. And outdoors tends to be the safest place. They're going to demand that people wear masks when they're in any kind of a setting where others are around. When you go up on the, on the ski lift, you'll be wearing a mask. But then how do you sit on the ski lift? So if it's got four people and you're not in a family, you might be sitting on opposite ends of the ski lift. You might mm. be just going up the lift by yourself. So a lot of behaviors are going to have to change in order to respect the fact that we're dealing with this COVID-19 situation. There will be some, obviously, some restaurant activity, but again, everything is going to be reduced. So you may be doing more eating in your room. That's what I really do say, that you really have to know before you go. They're hoping for a somewhat vibrant season because, again, it's outdoors. But let me just put one little wrinkle in this, and it was not in the in-depth story, but I was reading about it. And it turns out that Donald Trump has done a lot of clamping down on a lot of the visas that we use. But for the tourist industry, some of those visas are very important, like the J-1 visa. And I was reading about a lot of the ski areas out in the Midwest and the far west, and they're worried that they're not going to have the personnel available Mm -hmm. to help them because they're going to need more people, even though there may be fewer people skiing, in order to keep the situation safe. And the question will be, how do you hire people if they don't want to come, but they're not available? And they used to have these, you know, visas that they were able to bring, you know, international students in to work in these tourist areas, but they don't have them now. So again, that's another sort of aspect of Donald Trump's anti-immigrant position is that it actually may hurt this industry. 
Well, there may be people who uh, used to work other jobs who may be open to that now because, um, you know, the state of unemployment is as it is. I will say that, you know, I, I don't ski, I don't ski, but the, the area that I would have spent money in would be inside. So, you know, they'll lose the the money from people who just sit around and drink the toddy and look out the window. But, you know, in the in the scheme of things, that's that's a small part of the business. That, you know, I will admit, you know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you, you don't spend enough money to Cali for them to notice. Well, when you I don't know how much money I'm spending in toddies now, let me just say. But <laughs> oh, oh, oh. The, the online learning now that's happening at universities. Yes. going to be helpful, I think, Cali, because if you have online learning, then guess what? You could do online in the North Country with your ski equipment. That's true. You could still, quote, unquote, be going to school, but then you could be actually earning some bucks working for the school and the, the ski industry. So, again, we're all going to have to rethink not only employment, but schooling and what we're going to do if we want to ski. And there may be some creativity, but there may be some real opportunity. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. There's, you know, on the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that. This is this. These are the times that we live in. That, that's what I can say in this moment. Thank you all for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Arnie Arneson is the host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Ted Nisi is the politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI. And Jeff Spillane is a reporter for the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, this year marks the 65th anniversary of the start of what Americans know as the Vietnam War and what the Vietnamese call the resistance war against America. Novelist Nguyen Phan Quay Mai chronicles one family's story of heart and hope in the historical novel The Mountain Sing. It's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Library bookshelves are full of histories, biographies, poetry, and novels exploring the American experience in the Vietnam War. But at least in America, with the notable exception of documentaries, there hasn't been great interest in cultural works chronicling the Vietnamese experience. Now comes a history-based novel based on one family story through four generations. This moving saga has captivated readers with its authenticity and lyrical storytelling. The Mountain Sing is the debut novel of Vietnamese Vietnamese poet Nguyen Phan Quay Mai, and it is her first written in English. It's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Nguyen Phan Quay Mai joins me from her home in Indonesia. Welcome to Under the Radar. Thank you so much, Kali, and Under the Radar Book Club for having me. This is such a great honor to be speaking with you. Well, my listeners and readers are just going to be delighted because it's a wonderful book. So as I said, this is a book that spans uh, four generations. The narrators are a grandmother and her granddaughter who tell the story of pivotal moments in the history of Vietnam, like the communist land reform and the bombing of Hanoi in 1972. Um, but the historical novel are told through the Tran family. So before we get 
dive right in. Tell us about the Tran family. Who are they? So the Chan family, the family from northern Vietnam, and um, you know they are a family of farmers who who worked really hard to 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 build you know their life um, around the land that they love, and they also um, you know hide workers. Who work for them. So they are the people who love the land and, and love the Vietnamese life. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of historical events directly impacted on their life and they were separated, you know, and um, and scattered in, into different parts of Vietnam. So they had to move from Nghệ An province, uh, which is like north, the, the, sen- the northern central part of Vietnam to Hanoi, which is the capital of Vietnam, and uh, a family member also drifted to the south of Vietnam and fought against uh, his brothers and sister during the Vietnam War. So you said you wanted to write the story of Vietnamese history, but from the viewpoint of the Vietnamese people. You know, I think a lot of people will be surprised as I was. I'm reading along and you're hearing the characters refer to what Americans call the Vietnam War, but the Vietnamese call the War of Resistors. And there was a moment Mm -hmm. I was right, right, right. This is the perspective of the Vietnamese. (laughs) Um, And it's just so uh, refreshing and interesting because just to see that parallel of what was happening in a country and with people that I, I am sure most Americans really never thought about much. You know, the official name for this war in Vietnam until today is called Chiến Trang Chống Mỹ Cứu Nước. So it means the um, resistance war against America to save the nation. So, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, um, learning by heart the name of the war. And, uh, you know, it was uh, cut into my memory. And only later on when I read literature in English that I knew different perspectives. And, and you know, I think history has so many different perspectives, a lot of, you know, like according to the lived experiences of the people. So I just wanted to tell the history of Vietnam through the experiences of the normal people, especially uh, from the perspective of the Vietnamese women, because I was very frustrated when when I, I read, you know, uh, literature, literature in English about Vietnam uh, written by Westerners, you know, a lot of, of Vietnamese women in, um, you know, this type of literature is represented as victims, as voiceless, as absent of trauma, as uh, colonized, as as uh, oversexual. You know, so I wanted to to tell stories about the women whom I grew up with, whom I I, I knew throughout my life, and women who had no choice but to bear the burden of history. And at the same time, you know, remain to be the pillars of our families and of the Vietnamese society. 
Well, it really it really packs a punch, and um, all of the details are so meticulous. Uh, I remind people; I had to remind myself. This is a historical novel, <laughs> but but the historical details are just so precise that you're you're drawn in, and you and you get it. You you understand uh, the family against the backdrop of this uh, very important history. Yes, thank you. You know, because I wanted to. Um to present Vietnam um, as I know, you know, because I was born and grew up inside Vietnam. And the first time I left Vietnam was, you know, when I was 19 or about to become 20 years old. And and, and I feel a lot of the time, the international reader only knows about Vietnam as the war. Whereas we are a country rich with uh, cultural heritage, with history and with the love that families have for each other, so so I wanted to uh, to to present that Vietnam to the international reader, and you know this novel is not just about the war, but it's about you know our language. For example, I hope that you notice a lot of the proverbs which is spoken in in Vietnam until today, and I had to bring that into into the novel because that's our way of life, you know. For example, you know, we have the saying, trong cái rủi có cái may, good luck hides inside bad luck. So, you know, the bad luck is, you know, there's this, you know, terrible pandemic, right? But the 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 good luck that has come out of it is that we are learning to work together as a global community and we 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 have to be united because this pandemic cannot be conquered unless all of us are united as a community and i think if we come out of this we will be a stronger uh, community and a stronger human race Oh, that is one of my favorite proverbs. Thank you so much for that sentiment. Good luck hides inside bad luck. I wrote that down and I've said that out loud to myself a few times. I want to give people a chance to hear the language um, as you've written it. Um, Let's start at page four, which is pretty early on in the book, um, but people get a sense of uh, the grandmother and her granddaughter and and the family scenario in the middle of uh, uh, a a quite uh, pivotal moment. Thank you. Shelter after shelter is full. People dart in front of us like birds with broken wings, abandoning bicycles, carts, shoulder bags. A small girl stands alone, screaming for her parents. Attention, citizens, attention, citizens. American bombers are approaching Hanoi, 30 kilometers away. Clumsy with fear, I trip and fall. Grandma pulls me up. She throws my school bag to the roadside, bending down for me to jump onto her back. She runs, her hands wrapping around my legs. Thundering noise approaches, explosions, rings from afar. I hold on to grandma's shoulders with sweaty hands, bearing my face into her body. Attention citizens, attention citizens, more American bombers are approaching Hanoi, 100 kilometers away. Run to the school, they won't bomb the school. Grandma shouts to a group of women lurching young children in their arms and on their backs. At 52 years of age, grandma is strong. She dashes past the women, catching up with those ahead of us. 
bounce up and down. I press my face against her long black hair that smells like my mother's. As long as I can inhale her scent, I will be safe. Hương, run with me. Grandma had squatted down in front of my school painting. She pulls me into the schoolyard. Next to a classroom, she flings herself down a vacant shelter. As I slide down next to her, water rises to my waist, gripping me with icy hand. It's so cold, the, the beginning of winter. Grandma reaches up, closing the lid. She hugged me, the drum of her heart throbbing through my blood. I thank Buddha for the gift of this shelter, large enough to feed us both. I fear for my parents on the battlefields. When will they come back? Have they seen Uncle Dad, Uncle Thuan, and Uncle Sang? That is my guest, Wen Fan Kuei Mai. She's joining me from her home in Indonesia. She is the author of The Mountain Sing, and it's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Oh, boy, this, I mean, just every page of this is just, just, just carries you along, I have to say. Um, now, Grandma, as people could hear, has a very central part uh, in the book. I've said Grandma narrates, and so does her granddaughter. But you had a very special reason uh, for creating the character of Grandma. Would you share that? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, um, um, so when I was born, both of my grandmothers had died. So I was so jealous of my friends, you know, who had grandmothers to tell them, you know, stories about their family and the legends of our village and our hometown. So I wish myself to have a grandma. So I told myself, you know, one day I was going to write a book with a grandmother in it, you know, to have a grandmother. So, yeah, it was my, uh, my mission, you know, my wish to write this novel. And, uh, you know, one of my grandmothers was killed in the Great Hunger. So the, the story about her life was told to me by my father. And her death was horrific because she was one of the, the, the victims of the Great Hunger uh, that, that killed, you know, nearly 2 million Vietnamese. And I realized this, this catastrophe, which is a direct consequence of World War II, hasn't been widely documented, you know. Um, it, it seems like the victims have been forgotten. So I was determined to write about it. And, and so, um, you know, this, is, this, this book is, is an honor that I wanted to pay to my grandmothers. And I don't even, my, my, my family don't even have a picture of them. Wow. Uh, so I don't, I have no idea how my grandmothers look like. And I'm just thankful for this book because, you know, you know, with the mountain thing, I could imagine how my grandmothers look like and and I could trace the, their, their steps and their dreams and their hopes. I remember the moment that I received this book sent, you know, to me by Argon Print Books, who did a fabulous job of printing it, and it's so beautiful. And I, the day that I received it, I stood in front of, of the, the altar, and I, I just cried, and I spoke to my grandmothers, and, and I felt like they were with me, you know. Mm. And, and, and I really believe, because in the Vietnamese culture, we, we believe that, um, when our ancestors die, they don't disappear. 
they 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 are above us and watching us and and you know and uh, protecting us so yeah so so i feel like every step that i take you know my my ancestors are watching over me and you know i have that blessing well, you definitely connected us to the Vietnamese culture. Uh, we spoke about the language a little bit earlier. It's all through the book. Um, you did make an effort to translate the language on the page. And it's interesting because I have uh, had conversations with other authors um, who write and who speak a different language. And some of them do not translate. They just want you to get the context from the sentence on the page or or look it up or whatever. And, and I respect and appreciate both. So you did that. You also highlighted the lullabies, which are folk songs. Uh, we talked about the proverbs. But it all together really draws you in culturally. So now when you just spoke about going to stand bef- before the altar when you got your book, I mean, I really appreciate what that means. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. You know, when during the seven years that I wrote this book, I felt the need to reconnect to um, to Vietnamese history and the history of my family, uh, not just on the level of events and experiences, but emotionally, because a lot of Vietnamese way of life is based on our traditions and our beliefs. You know, remember in in the book, there's there are also stories about fortune tellers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a uh, as a girl growing up in Vietnam, you know, I had my hands read by fortune tellers and I was fascinated with their tellings and I was scared. <laughs> I was really frightened. And, and I thought one day, you know, I mean, if I, I write about Vietnam, I had to bring these types of traditions into the book. And because it made uh, somehow it's, it's a part of our experiences. And, and I think, you know, like the life of Grandma Ziolan was predicted by a fortune teller who said she was going to have a hard life. And she was, no nobody in her family could understand that because they were very rich, you know. But this is also exam, an example of how war can really uh, change people's life in a second, you know. Like, it, it's like a storm that can sweep away the lives of millions of people in a, uh, you know, in a matter of seconds. And so when a, a war or, or conflict takes place, you have no control of what's going to happen to you. And, and Grandma Ziolan, you know, had no control of all the terrible events that kept, you know, um, happening to her family. What she could have and sustain is the sense of hope and the kindness that she had the, that she had for other people and for grandma Ziolan, i i think i model her um personality after my mother mm. my mother um was orphaned of her parents from a very young age so her mom died from a very when she was a baby and her father was killed in the land reform um, and she was a very young girl, but she grew up with a lot of compassion and, you know, and, and she's never desperate and she always found ways, you know, to make our lives better. You know, she was a teacher, but she worked as a farmer and she was trading, you know, <laughs> when it was yes, prohibited. Yes. So I, I minored some of our 
experiences into the book. But this book also, uh, you know, uh, gathers a lot of experiences, uh, you know, um, of my friends and the, the people whom I know. It's a complex story to write, but I was driven by it because I think the my emotions were so strong because I felt these stories needed to be told. Well, it definitely came through. You know what else comes through? Even though this is the first uh, novel that you have written uh, in English, that means you have many other books uh, that have been translated uh, and published in other countries, but this is the first written in English, and the language is so beautiful. Part of that, I'm guessing, is because you are a poet, so you really understand words and language, even in a different language, you're massaging those words to make uh, what's on the page so beautiful. Um, and I was reminded, this is so interesting, that I had a conversation last year with Ocean Vong, who I know mm. you know, who is a poet and had just uh, come out with a novel. And I spoke to him about this, which I'm going to ask you, which is about when you are a poet and then you write prose, is it easier because you have command of those words? And so... I wonder if it's th that makes that process of writing just a, of, in terms of how you see things a little bit easier. You know, I must tell you that I'm a great fan of Ocean Vuong and I love his poetry as well as his novel, On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous. And I have translated his work into Vietnamese. <laughs> and I think what he, what he said is so right, you know, as a poet, I, I think we have to dig deeper to find different layers of the language. And we, you know, like to find the imagery, to find the lyrics. So, so, so I could say that as a poet, we, we uh, look out for different tools to use. So I think that would be an advantage, but also a disadvantage because we work the prose to death. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, sometimes one day I work on a single sentence because I'm like, you know, I want to make this poetic. And as a poet, you have, I think you set your standard a bit higher because, you know, if I just write the story plainly as it happens, I think it's too boring and it would be boring to the reader. So, you know, I'm very much tempted to sneak poetry into the prose because, you know, that's that's the fun of writing for a poet. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. for example, you know, the, the title, The Mountains Sing, um, you know, like the mountains represent the challenges faced by Vietnamese people, right? But the mountains also represent, you know, the division that we experience as, as Vietnamese, you know, during our history, you know, we were very much divided. The mountain sing also is the name of the bird, you know, Sơn Ca, the symbol of hope that one of the two narrators, Hương, uh, received from her father who went to war and carved this wooden bird, you know, to, to send back to her as a symbol of his love and and she used she employed you know the bird as a as a symbol of hope so the name of the bird uh Sơn Ca, which can which can be translated as the mountains sing yeah the title of the novel itself you know i employed it as a poetic image and i hope you also notice it i did now something else i noticed people should know that you have are 
been working against war, that war, you know, you want to make a point um, that war is not where we should be, uh, what we should be doing and have been involved in many anti-war efforts. Um, in your acknowledgement, you say, for the millions of people, Vietnamese and non-Vietnamese who lost their lives in the war, may our planet never see another armed conflict. So I wanted to point out that really, even as you tell the story um, in this book that it's of the family that is shaped by war, you really are have a message of 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 uh, the damage that war does uh, to people. Definitely, you know, I when I was growing up, you know, in Vietnam, I was born in 1973, two years before the war ended, and I grew up, you know, witnessing the war's devastation. It was. All around me, there were bomb shelters, and there were so many people who had lost their arms and legs. So I was so sure that the human race could not be so stupid as to wage another war. And I think it was a naive thought as, as a child, but I, the more I grew up there, the more I knew about war, the more I think, you know, humans should really love humans more. And as who, what my narrator said in the novel, if all of us read books from other cultures and see the light of other cultures, there would be no war on earth. That's right. Well, Kwee Mai, uh, from the first page, when I read The Sun is a Large egg yolk. I settled in and gobbled up this book like it were a feast, and I pretty much read it all the way straight through, and I cried at the end, not because it was a sad ending, but because I was so connected to the characters. This is a triumph. Um, I could read all the high praise from everybody, and um, we'd be here for another hour. But I just want to say that it's a fabulous book. I enjoyed it so much, and I thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Kali, and Under the Radar for having me. For those who have been listening, I'm very grateful for your time. I hope you will read The Mountains Sing and travel with me to Vietnam. Please take good care and stay safe during this pandemic. I look forward very much to meeting you in person one day. Nguyen Phan Quê Mai is the author of 11 books of fiction, poetry, and nonfiction written in Vietnamese, translated and published in more than 10 countries. The Mountain Sing is her first novel and the first written in English, and it's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available in bookstores and online now. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at wgbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Sexies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.